Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode. I am beyond excited today to have on a very special guest in Jessica. Jessica has a PhD in social psychology. She currently works at the University of Victoria, as well as doing some work in restorative justice. She has quite a bit of research that stems in forgiveness. So today we're going to be talking a lot about social psychology, what it is, some talk about forgiveness, and obviously we have to talk about restorative justice. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Is there anything that I missed, like in that quick, like 20 second summarization, anything else you'd add? Nope, that's good. <laughs> Fantastic. So to start, Jessica, why do you think we're having this conversation today? Like, what, why am I having you on this podcast? Uh, because you were a student in my class <laughs> and, uh, and we started talking and chatting and, um, yeah, just had some great conversations. And uh, you mentioned, I think, to me in your introduction in my class that you had a podcast and I actually went on and, and watched some of your episodes and uh, let you know that I thought it was great. And, and here we are. That is so awesome. That is so awesome that you remember that. Absolutely. I mean, the only thing I'd add is you're such an interesting person. So the moment I met you, I thought there's there's so much to learn just listening to you about your knowledge and your experiences. Why not share that with a greater audience? Why just keep that for myself? So I, I totally agree. Now, the follow-up question is, Jessica, why did you agree to come on? Well, I guess you kind of answered it, right? Like you listen to the podcast, you're like, okay, he's not a total dummy. Like he's got a lot to learn, but he's somewhat on the right path. And you're like, this might be fun. Absolutely. And I think that I love psychology and not everyone has access to university education or is interested in a university education. And so I think all the different ways that people can learn about psychology and interact with that knowledge, I'm always happy to be part of that. I'm so glad that you're so forward thinking. And I remember we, we talked about this briefly before about there's so many barriers to getting this sort of knowledge, or at least there were. It's expensive to get into university. It's expensive to pay tuition. Even our classes, those seminar levels were about 25 students. And for some wait list, there's about 25 people on the wait list. So it's, it's quite a privilege to be in those classes. And I'm so happy that there's people like yourself out there who are looking at ways to lower the barriers to access this sort of education. Yeah, no, I, I'm so excited that you're doing this podcast. I think it's such an awesome thing. Amazing. With your backing, Jessica, nothing can go wrong. Awesome. <laughs> So Jessica, you have a PhD in social psychology. For the people listening to this, I'd say roughly 50% of them are between like that 18 to 25 years old range. Some may have taken a psychology class before, some maybe haven't. For some, this might be the first time they're hearing about the word social connected with psychology. What does that mean exactly? It's basically just looking at how we influence our world and the people around us and how they influence us. So for instance, I might act very differently with uh, my husband than I do my grandmother or with my best friend than I do my professor. So, you know, how, and how do our expectations and interpretations influence our interactions, that kind of stuff. That sounds really interesting. And on top of really interesting, it sounds really practical. It sounds like something you could learn and then you'd immediately see it in your everyday life. Yeah, I think a lot of people have this idea that you only study psychology if you want to go into, you know, counseling. Um, but I think 
knowing a bit about psychology is useful useful for any discipline that you want to go into because most people are interacting with other people at some point in their lives and so I think that you gain these nuggets by studying psychology that you can apply to pretty much anything whether it's your professional life or your personal life. I remember I was in one of my first social psychology courses it was just a basic general course and maybe they're talking about some theories or so and so and I you know kind of goes over my head and then all of a sudden they said okay now we're going to talk about like the psychology of friendship or you know, infidelity in relationships and immediately you go, whoa, this is so interesting. You know, and then yeah. write this stuff down. And so it's like, I, there's definitely a huge appeal, right? Even if I'm sure you've, you've been on TikTok or Instagram reels, you know, three psychology hacks, blah, 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 you know, at work with your supervisor or in relationships. Um, really quickly, just off the top of my head, are there any like um, resources or stuff for people that you follow in terms of social psychology that, that stick out to you? Um. I think most of the stuff I follow has to do with like teaching, <laughs> the mm. teaching of psychology. So I don't know that it would be super relevant to your listeners. Uh, I, I will admit I'm old. I don't TikTok. I uh, just Good. haven't gotten into that. <laughs> um, I anything. do look at Instagram reels um, and there's definitely some some great stuff out there. But I off the top of my head, I can't really think of anyone that I would I would recommend to follow just because I, I don't really do that. <laughs> sure. No, fair enough. So Jessica, you teach at a university. What does that entail? Like for students, we only see one side of it. We show up, the professor's there. It looks like they always want to teach or fingers crossed if you have those professors. You're almost like superhuman because God knows how much marking you do and the committees you attend. And, you know, then you show up and teach courses amongst the boatload of other things. So behind the scenes, what is it like teaching at a university? I think it depends on kind of your position. So I'm more of a what they call the teaching stream. And so my the bulk of my work is teaching. Um, and then I'm also required to engage in committee work for the department and also some service to the university. Uh, there's many, many other professors who are what they call research stream. And so they kind of have a split between teaching and conducting research and running research labs where they're employing students as research assistants and helping them gain that knowledge and uh, publishing their results in journals and that kind of thing. And then they also have to provide service to the department and the university. So there's definitely a lot that goes into it. Um, for me personally, I love teaching. So I do spend a lot of time preparing my classes and thinking about what we're going to do. I like to do, well, as you know, I like to do a lot of activities in my classes. I don't like to just stand there and talk. Um, and so <clears throat> there's definitely a lot of a lot of work. I would say that to prepare kind of that 50 minute lecture, I'm usually spending between six to eight hours prepping that one uh, lecture. Um, and then on top of that, yeah, there's there's the grading and the creating of the assignments and um, the creating of our web page for our class and all those kinds of things. You just said you spend six to eight hours preparing for one lecture. I personally do. Yeah. Wow. I think that's going to come as a shock to many people who think a professor might just look at one textbook copy and paste onto a Microsoft PowerPoint slide and then reuse that stuff for eight years, even though it gets outdated. There are some that do. <laughs> so uh, that's not that that doesn't happen. Uh, I think it just depends if teaching is your focus or if teaching is your passion, right? Um, for me, that's just, that's just not my style. That's not how I approach it. Wow. Lucky us, lucky your students then. Oh, thanks. What, Jessica, what does teaching mean to you? 
Ooh, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I I grew up with a mom who taught uh, um, in where I grew up, we called it level one. Uh, so I think that's equivalent of grade seven in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so she taught for many, many, many years and we live kind of in a small town and we would, you know, go out and run into students that had graduated, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And they all remembered her and they wow. would all come up to her and just tell her what a difference she had made in their lives. Mm. And I saw how excited she was about teaching and the the thought and effort she put into coming up with games for her students to do to learn, you know, verb conjugation and those kinds of things. And um, so I had this idea that I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, but I imagined myself, you know, in elementary school or high school, uh, not really thinking about university. And then I I went off to, you know, post-secondary stuff and fell in love with psychology, took my first psychology class and just loved it. And um and then thought I'd go into the counseling stream and things changed and realized that, oh, I could actually teach. <laughs> so I kind of taught my first class and realized, yep, this is, I love this. This is what I want to do. And then just really wanted to kind of emulate what I'd seen my mom and the impact that my mom had had. So for me, teaching is really about having an impact. And that doesn't mean me being up there and professing my knowledge because I don't see that myself that way at all um, I go up there and I have a conversation and I plant little seeds to get students thinking about things in ways that maybe they haven't thought about them before and trying to get them excited about things that they want to learn more about um, and I think that I probably learn just as much from my students as they learn from me so I, I love that interaction and just yeah getting to know people and the different experiences they've had I hope as you're talking, more listeners are thinking like, oh, that's why Daniel brought Jessica on because you really are a gem. Like when I met you, I, that's the immediate authentic sort of approach that I think you give off to everybody because you're being you. And that makes people want to reach out. That makes people think, wow, she really cares and she enjoys her job. And I'm, I'm just so happy to be a part of this, be a part of this class and, and be your student. So Jessica, have you found that people who graduate or then leave your classes do they come back to visit do they come see you in office hours and things like that uh sometimes I mean it depends a lot of people you know move on and move away sure. um, but sometimes sure. I definitely get emails from folks uh yeah a couple of months ago I was I was in a restaurant and this kind of person ran up and it was a student that I'd had I want to say like six years ago wow. and they had just come, they'd moved out of the country and they'd just come back to Canada. And they were like, oh my goodness, hi. And um, and it, yeah, it was awesome just to see where they were at and, and to hear what they're doing with their life. So I, I love that. I love getting the emails. I love people um, just dropping me a line and letting me know what's what's going on in their life and where they've ended up. Because, you know, you, we see you for a little bit and then you kind of just go away. <laughs> I can't imagine how amazing that must feel. Like seeing your mom and how people approached her after the fact and now you're basically in that position yeah I don't know that I'm having as much of an impact on people as she did but I I love that people are excited to come say hi and and excited to share what they did with with their career and where they are now and just that I'm excited that they just remember me really so <laughs> that's that's perfect I guess it says a lot about you and your teachings, right? I mean, if, if people have so many professors and so many classes, but if they remember you and they come up to you, I mean, you know, clearly something's gone right. Yeah. 
So Jessica, you've done some research in um, forgiveness and was this for your PhD? Uh, it was for the whole way through. So mm. we do have your, your bachelor's and you do your honors thesis. So I did forgiveness there. Then I did it for my master's and then I did it for my PhD as well. So t- tell me about what made you interested in forgiveness and like what were some of the things that you found? Were they surprising? Were they expected results? Mm. Um, you know, I, I always say that I'd love to have this amazing story about how I got into researching forgiveness. Um, all the big things, really big things that I've looked at forgiving in my life, I kind of started addressing after I started researching it. Mm. Um, I was set to study with uh, kind of one of the leading researchers in the world on trauma and nightmares. And that was something I was really interested in. But uh, the summer before we were going to work together, she and a colleague were listening to CBC Radio. And they heard an interview, this woman who was talking about having forgiven the man who murdered her daughter. And and my soon-to-be supervisor and her colleague got into a debate about whether that was actually possible. Uh, could you forgive something so horrific? And so uh, they were like, wow, well, we need to study this. And so she kind of got in touch with me and was like, hey, I'm switching gears. Want to come along for the ride? And so I said, sure. <laughs> And so, yeah, so we started studying forgiveness and it wasn't a field that had a a ton of research in yet. Um, In psychology, forgiveness really only started being researched in the mid 1980s, which is pretty new for the field. And so uh, it was kind of, you know, the world is your oyster, like whatever we were interested in studying, whatever questions we had, we could we could study because chances were people hadn't looked at that yet. Um, And then I got to realize that forgiveness is something that is applicable to almost everybody, either wanting forgiveness or needing to forgive or not forgiving and struggling with that or those kinds of things. Uh, And so I just, yeah, I just started really enjoying it and enjoying the fact that what I was researching could be applicable to, to so many people in everyday life. Would you, thank you so much for sharing that. Would you be able to share like a small nugget of like, Hey, like here's, you know, a misconception people have about forgiveness or here's something the mainstream says, but it's actually this. Yeah. Um, well, there's definitely lots of myths about forgiveness. So, you know, there's definitely the saying forgive and forget. And I, I always tell people that's a terrible idea. Like, please don't get amnesia. That's mm. nobody wants that. Um, you know, if you, if you just forget, then you run the risk of getting back in the same type of situation. Um, or as the person who did the harm, you run the risk of, of doing that harm again and not having learned and grown from your experience you know that's not a good thing we don't want that Mm -hmm. um i think people think uh forgiveness always needs to involve the person who harmed you for instance um while that would be ideal and it would be amazing if the person who harmed us could apologize genuinely and then we could forgive them and that would be great and the real world often doesn't work like that and so i always talk to people about You know, let's think about the power you're giving the person who harmed you. If you're saying you can't do something you want to do, forgive, unless they approach you with an apology. And so talk to people about taking back their own power and what it means to move through the emotions of unforgiveness into the emotions of forgiveness, maybe without having any contact with the person who harmed you. So that's always kind of an interesting conversation to have with people. Um... Some of my work in self-forgiveness, I found that oftentimes counselors and, and the folks who are going to see them uh, have very different ideas of what it means to forgive yourself. 
And so counselors tend to believe that forgiving yourself means you got to let go of all the guilt and all the shame that you're holding on to about what you did. Whereas the, the folks who are going to see them who caused a harm, uh, most of them say that for them, forgiving themselves means holding on to a tiny little bit of that guilt and a little bit of that shame, almost as a reminder so that they don't forget, so that they can remember the impact that their actions have and they can it helps them remember the person they wanna be and, and the person that they're moving or the aspect of themselves that they're moving away from. Um, and so those are in, important things to know because if you don't have a conversation with your counselor about, you know, if you just say, yeah, I wanna work on forgiving myself and you both think you know what that means without having a conversation about how you're actually defining that, uh, you could be working towards two very different things. <laughs> Wow, I never thought about it like that. You're right, I hear that so often. It's, you know, oh, just forgive and you know, put it behind you so you don't have to think about it anymore. Completely forgive someone, you know, and then and then just forget about it. Don't, right, obviously, don't think about it, right? That's something yeah. people say. But why, that's so interesting that you say, look, you can forgive, but that doesn't mean you have to forget amnesia and just forget because then yes. you're going to end up in the same place. Yeah, and, and also forgiving does not mean that what that person did was okay. I think that's a really important one too. When I first think about forgiveness, you know, I, I think there's so many different examples. And that first one that you gave about um, that person and the daughter getting murdered is such a heightened and extreme example. You kind of sit mm -hmm. back and even, I like to think of myself as a person who's forgiven in the past, but I can understand the, the reason for debate or the cause of debate because that's that's tough that's extreme like i can't even imagine how you would go about such a thing yeah and i always say to people that you know I, I i'm a forgiveness researcher i think it's a great thing to do and i don't think it's something that everybody needs to do and that everyone will be able to do i know there's some things in my life that i haven't been able to forgive and that's okay you know it becomes a problem if it's interfering with your life if you're always angry if you're lashing out if you can't focus on other things um, but, you know, our negative emotions can diminish with the passage of time, with moving on to different aspects in our lives. Like there's lots of different ways that we can kind of, you know, quote unquote, move on. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be forgiveness. And so I think we have, we live in a culture that pressures people to forgive. And I think that that can be pretty harmful in and of itself, actually. I'm very glad you brought that up because I've heard that as well, right? You should forgive or it's the right thing to forgive or do it because it'll make the other person feel better. You know, it's like, well, I, I don't know if that's, I mean, I'm not the social psychologist here, but it, you certainly raise an eyebrow. Yeah. So tell me, Jessica, to move slightly away from forgiveness, tell me about your work in restorative justice, like how you got involved in that and for people who've maybe never heard of the term, like I certainly didn't know much about it before your class. What is it? Yeah. Um, well, I got into restorative justice through my research and forgiveness. Um, <clears throat> however, forgiveness does not have to be a part of restorative justice and often isn't. Um, but I was, I'd come across the term in the research I was doing just in articles I was reading and it really meant nothing to me. And then I, I, moved to do my PhD and I was kind of getting to know the town and I came across this poster for a book talk that was going to be happening and it was a woman who'd um, forgiven her husband's killer and uh, I was like whoa I need to go to that so I went to that 
specifically to learn more about her experience with forgiveness. And she talked about this thing she had done called restorative justice, where in her situation, she had met with one of the people responsible for her husband's death. And she talked about what that was like and the impact that that had. And I was just like, my jaw dropped and I was like, oh my goodness. So I kind of cornered her after the talk and convinced her that we should go for coffee and learn more about restorative justice. And she kind of pointed me in the right direction to get involved with it uh, in the community. And uh, yeah, so I did that and it's just brought such a depth and enrichment to my life. It's uh, seeing people at their worst in the worst situation they've encountered uh, for many and just walking through that alongside them. And it's just, um, I come out of those meetings a different person every time. And so it's, um, it can be done where you're meeting with the person who harmed you, you're having a conversation about what happened, and the person who harmed you is, uh, everyone at that meeting is coming up with ideas of what they can do to help address some of the impacts they've created in your life as a result of their behavior. But it can also be that maybe you want that conversation to happen, but as the person harmed, you don't want to be part of that conversation. So it's members of the community or maybe a surrogate uh, affected party who's sitting in on that meeting. Uh, It can happen instead of court. It can happen at the same time as court, like pre-sentencing or post-sentencing. Like it can happen at any point in time in the system. It can happen for shoplifting and graffiti. It can happen for murder. So it really kind of runs the gamut. Um, And it's... You know, I think it's just a way for for everyone involved to get their needs met. The people who were harmed actually can ask questions and have a say in what that meeting looks like uh, in a way that they don't have that same kind of power in court. And the person who was harmed also can ask questions and does a lot of meetings to prepare for the 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 big meeting at the end. and And so they do a lot of reflecting and understanding their motivations for their behavior and understanding the impacts that they had on the person harmed, but also on themselves and their own family and the members of the community and the friends and family of the person harmed. And so you just get kind of a, I think a bigger learning that comes out of it. It's not about punishment. It really is about, all right, you did this. You can't change that. This happened. We can't change that. What are we gonna do now? And how do we wanna move forward and, and moving forward together? And so it's, yeah, it's something that has just really, um, I'm just so, so happy that I went to that book talk and learned about it and got involved. It sounds very valuable and it good for you for taking the initiative on thinking, you know, this is interesting. I'm going to go after this. You went and, you know, you, you stuck to it. Yeah. yeah, it's been pretty like grassroots organizations, but uh, it's gaining more moment- momentum And both the federal and the provincial governments in Canada are starting to say, oh, this is something that we want to start implementing. So it's it's starting to kind of gain more eyes and attention. So I think we're going to start hearing more about it as we move forward. Awesome. One of the things that I hear when you're talking about restorative justice is there's a big focus on the individual that's been harmed and what they need rather than. So I guess the opposite of everything you were saying is what we currently have. Right. It's focus on the punishment what's been done and I remember when visiting like a court case or speaking to my classmates about it you would see this individual was harmed 
And they were just kind of going through a process. And sometimes they didn't even say a word. They just sat there silently and other people spoke on their behalf and what should happen. And these are policies and these are presidents. So I love this idea of just looking at the person like, what do you need? Like, exactly. Like, what, like, forget the policies and precedents. Like, what do you need to happen? And I think it's such a easy thing to say, okay, you've done this crime. This is the punishment that we overlook the individual that's been harmed in the process. Yeah. And, and it's not, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a prison abolitionist. Like it's not about, um, there shouldn't be any consequences or anything like that, but oftentimes, you know, people that have been harmed and a person may or may not be found guilty and may or may not be sentenced to jail Mm -hmm. time. Um, but even then it's like, okay, so they go and sit in jail for a few months or a few years or whatever it may be. And, and then what? How does that like find they're off the streets? Maybe I feel safer. I feel like my community is safer, but there's so many other impacts in my life because of what happened. And those, those tend to get missed in the court process. Speaking of things that get missed in the court process, Jessica, tell me about the current court process, mental health. And when we're looking at trauma victims. Oh, um, we could do a whole podcast. Episode yeah, on that I bet. One. I bet. Um, you know, we have an overrepresentation of folks with mental health issues in our prison system. Uh, I think our, our criminal justice system has uh, become a place where we're, 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 we're essentially just putting folks we don't know what to do with. Uh, in our communities, we're lacking resources, we're lacking funding, we're lacking adequate treatment, we're lacking humane compassion for people. And the answer is just kind of well out of sight, out of mind. Um, and people with, you know, people with a mental illness are not mo- more likely to be violent than someone without, but they are more likely to be the victim of a crime. Um, and so I think that's, that's a, a big misconception in society is mental illness means you're dangerous, you're violent, you're going to harm me. So there's this fear and the stigma around it. Um, and it's just resulted in this big mess that we have right now. Um, and so, and and trauma is a form of having mental health issues, right? Trauma impacts the way that you think, it impacts the way you feel, impacts the way that you react to things. Um, and so we see a lot of people with trauma who are perhaps engaging in some criminal activity, um, because every other system has let them down because they can't get their needs met any other way because a lot of people with trauma fall into addiction uh, because they're trying to cope because they don't have access to other resources to cope Um, and so it's just this this big giant tangle (laughs) Um, and you know there's lots of researchers out there that talk about the link between trauma and addiction and crime um, and and I think when we put people in our criminal justice system, they're not getting those supports. They're not getting the treatment that they need to deal with the root issue uh, of the behavior. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. There's also community systemic problems, right? Like poverty and all those kinds of things. Um, putting people in, in prison isn't solving that. Um, and so until until we start addressing those things at the community level, we're going to keep seeing uh, the the miss or the overrepresentation of folks with mental health issues in our in our criminal justice system is restorative justice the first step in that right direction to address some of these things. 
I think it's one step. I think in restorative justice, we try to figure out what people need. And there's trauma at the level of the responsible party, but there's also trauma at the level of the affected party. And we try mm -hmm. to set them up with, with whatever resources they might need for mental health, addiction, whatever it might be. We can only set them up with <clears throat> resources that exist. Uh, as programs in restorative justice, we don't really have any funding. So we can't pay for treatment. Mm. Uh, we can't pay for those resources. So it's trying to find resources that they can afford or resources that are offered for free. Um, and a lot of those are don't exist or they have really long wait lists. Um, but I definitely think it's a process where mental health is addressed in a way that sometimes isn't in court and and sometimes in court it is we have we do have mental health courts uh, mm, that are right. specifically trying to address that and and they have funding and resources uh, lots of the probation programs have the funding and resources for programs and so there's lots of great things in our criminal justice system um we're just in a bit of a, a messy situation right now i guess you could say the takeaway is there's definitely lots of gaps and that yeah. doesn't mean everything's terrible. There's certain things like mental health courts and and certain resource and funding in some places, which are I move in the right direction. Yet simultaneously, there's a lot of things that could be improved. Yes. Jessica, you spend so much time around different individuals, whether it be vulnerable populations in restorative justice, whether it be with the people harmed, the perpetrators. You definitely spend a lot of time with young people. Well, I don't, I don't know what the generation of like my generation is. I don't know if we're millennials or not, but you know, like the 18 to 20 something year olds. Um, what, I mean, I know it's kind of a cliche thing. Like what advice do you have to tell everybody? But based on what you've seen and based on your experience in forgiveness in restorative justice, do you have something to say to, it could be a student struggling with stress or maybe someone who's in a place who, you know, maybe would benefit from forgiving or something's happened in their life and they're thinking, look, maybe I should forgive, but I don't know if I'm ready to, or mm -hmm. I don't know if forgiveness is the option because there's so many different things out there. And I think one of the troubles is in one sense, we have peer reviewed journals, which are, you know, like the standard, but they're very hard to access and the general public mm -hmm. it's behind a paywall. And then you have social media where anybody could say anything, right? And we could give our advice, which is fine. But the tricky thing is because there's no, it's not peer reviewed. We don't know how much merit there is in their advice or what they've said. So having an expert in front of me, having a black belt in forgiveness and social psychology, what, what is like one takeaway, one nugget that a young person between 18 to 25 could take with them into the rest of their day or the rest of their weeks they could help better themselves uh, well i think there's kind of two nuggets because there's just Please. in general and then related to forgiveness mm -hmm. so i think in general what i always see to folks um i think we kind of are pretty hard on ourselves we're a lot harder on ourselves than we tend to be on others uh, and so i always talk about everybody's gonna mess up everybody <laughs> um and so it's it's about not so much what you did um that's done it's about your choices now because after you've done something that you're not super proud of or that's stressing you out you have a lot of different choices and and those to me are the ones that that tell me more about your character than what you did in the past knowing what you did in the past what are you going to choose to do now 
And I always say to people, you imagine yourself, you're like, you know, a 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle. That thing you did is one tiny little piece and maybe it's blue. <laughs> mm. If I just look at that one tiny piece, which is what we tend to do, hyper-focus on that one tiny piece, all I see is blue. I don't know if that's sky. I don't know if that's ocean. I don't know if that's a blue popsicle. Like it could be anything. It could be a Smurf, right? Like I don't know what that is. You are so much more than that one tiny little piece, that one thing that you're beating yourself up over. You are the entire jigsaw puzzle. And until we can step back and look at all those other pieces and remember all those other parts of us, um, then we're losing sight of that, of, of who we are, right? So always remember you're more than that one thing that you're feeling so embarrassed or ashamed about having done. And I think about uh, in terms of forgiveness, not everyone agrees, but for me, I see forgiveness as a gift to yourself. You know, it can also be a gift to the person who harmed you. Uh, if you want it to be, if you want to reconcile that relationship, then it's important you have a conversation and that's a big piece of it. But for me, forgiveness is really just, it's its a gift to yourself. It's, it's letting go of that anger and that grief about what happened or letting go of that shame and that guilt about what you did and, and stepping into thoughts and emotions that are associated with freedom and actually enjoying life um and so for me it's it's about asking yourself why like why do you want to forgive what's like what's your purpose and 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 can will you actually achieve that with forgiveness and there's lots of you know counseling and lots of workshops out there around forgiveness forgiveness is hard to do so it's, 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 if you're struggling with it, that's okay. And there are lots of resources out there. So I guess my, my third nugget would be, don't ever be afraid to reach out for help. That's something that took me a long time to learn. I tried to always do things, go it alone. Um, and it works for a while <laughs> until it doesn't. And then things are worse than they were. And so uh, my, my big life lesson was uh, it's not a weakness to reach out for help. It's actually shows a lot of strength and courage to recognize that you need it and to go out and get it. Beautifully put, Jessica. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for saying yes and, and agreeing to be on this podcast. I'm super excited for people to hear to all the wonderful nuggets that you've given me over these last couple of minutes. Well, thanks so, so much for having me. And uh, yeah, just I, I do genuinely enjoy your podcast. And so I look forward to seeing many more. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Take care and stay safe.